book, you know, it's uh, it's broken up into two halves. It has 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books. The first 39 chapters is like the Old Testament of Isaiah. It deals with the nation of Judah and their anxiety over the growing threat of Assyria. Um, and Isaiah the prophet going to them saying, listen, God's going to take care of you. The Messiah is coming. Don't worry about Assyria. If anything, you should worry about Babylon. And they're all like, Babylon? It was Babylon. They're just a tiny little, you know, runt over there. We're not worried about Babylon. We're scared about Assyria. We need some help. And Isaiah's like, well, you got God. And they're like, yeah, but we need some real help. And that just all angers God. And so Assyria is wiped off the map. And then Babylon grows into a mighty empire. And they come in. Uh, and they'll conquer Judah. That hasn't happened yet, though. Isaiah's writing about the future when uh, Babylon will conquer Judah. So he has to write to this people for whom Babylon is no more significant on the map than Jamaica. And he has to explain to them that they're going to be big and they're going to conquer you. But then you're going to come out of that conquest. You're going to come back home. Oh, by the way, you're going to have to be forced out of Jerusalem. You're going to go into exile. And you're going to come back home. And when you do, the Messiah is going to be waiting for you. Now you put that in quote marks. He wasn't just standing there, Jesus waiting, but prophetically, poetically, in a sense, after they come out of exile, the next big event on the calendar for them is the coming of the Messiah. And so that's the second half of Isaiah. That's chapters uh, 40 through 66, those last 27 chapters, where he really digs into who the Messiah is, what great things he's going to do for them, and how wonderful it's going to be. But peppered throughout that is this constant reminder that your salvation, your freedom, your good days to come are going to have to be paid for and going to be bought with a great sacrifice. And if you ask anybody about Isaiah and Jesus, the chapter they're going to think about is most likely chapter 53. We'll talk about 53 in a couple of weeks, but I want to look at 52 because it sets up 53. And it really explains to us how bad things are going to have to be first before things get better. The first six verses of this chapter, how bad things are going to be. The next six verses, how much better it's going to be. And in the last few verses, the high price is going to be paid to make it better. So read with me Isaiah 52. Look at verse number 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. You're not going to have to worry about an invading Gentile army. This is what the Babylonians are going to be. Now it hasn't happened yet, but he's, he's so far ahead, he's talking about it in the past tense. So he's telling these exiled Judean people, get up, put on your best clothes, put on your strongest suit, put on your fanciest, schmanciest outfits, because you're going home today. You get to leave exile and you get to go back to Judah. So put on your strength because you're going to have to never worry again about an invading army. Now you read that and you think, but the Romans invaded. Persians had it. The Seleucians had it. All kinds of nations conquered Judah. When Jesus is on the scene, the Romans have occupation. But he's not talking about physical invaders. He's using these physical terms to speak spiritually. The allegory here is of sinful salvation. Look at verse 2. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit down, Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, you captive daughter of Zion. Shake the dust off because you're going home. You can wipe yourself free of the conquest. You can clean yourself up from the muck and the mire and the grime that has typified your period in exile. So if you're sitting down, stand up and let's go home. If you're standing up, sit down, clean yourself up and let's go home. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you sold yourselves for nothing, so you shall be redeemed without money for nothing. In other words, 
They sold themselves for nothing. God says, you went to Babylon. I gave you away. I am going to give you to that evil empire. They're, they're not paying me. I didn't sell you to the highest bidder. There was no transaction. I just gave you away because you fell into idolatry. You gave up on me. You stopped relying on me. So I turned you over to them to sit in time out in exile. So I gave you away for nothing. The, the idea behind this verse, if you go back through the book, is more than twice Judah asked the question, how is God going to free us from this exile you're talking about if it's a legally binding uh, action? In other words, they're not going to be conquered in the um, surreptitious way. It's not going to be like, well, we're going to go down to Egypt in the time of, of Joseph and we're going to live there. It's going to be great. And then a new Pharaoh is going to rise. And he's going to sneak attack us. And suddenly we're going to find ourselves conquered. That's not fair. That's not very nice. That's not playing by the rules. In this case, Babylon is going to execute a legal, actual, run-of-the-mill conquest. And if they had contracts and treaties like we signed today, the last king of Judah would have signed away and had to formally and officially surrender. So it's a legally binding conquest, a legally binding exile. So how is God going to get out of this? Judah wonders. And Isaiah says, are you crazy? It's God. God is the one who gave you up. Babylon didn't do this. Babylon is just being used by God. They're just the sword God's wielding, and then the paddle God's wielding to spank you. So if God can give you away for nothing, God can get you back for nothing in the sense of you're not going to have to pay anything. You're not going to buy yourselves out of Babylon. Something is going to be paid, but it's not you paying the price. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. The Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Verse 5. Now therefore, what have I here? This is the third time now. You have the Egyptian captivity. You have the conquest of Assyria over the north. And now a third time, this foreign power has come in. This foreign power is going to conquer you. Again, there's an allegory here to sin and salvation. Once again, you find yourselves conquered. You find yourselves shackled. To an enemy you can't break free of on your own. What have I here, says the Lord? My people taken away for nothing. And they that rule over them, make them to howl. Your conquerors are wicked. Your conquerors are pain-inducing. You hurt when you're in captivity. They make you to howl. But what are you doing, Isaiah says to Judah in response? Are you howling and crying to God for deliverance? No, that's what they did in Egypt. But that's not what you're doing here. You are blaspheming my name continually. Every day, he says at the end of verse 5. God, again, this is even before they've gone into exile. But they're looking in the future, looking back on what's to come. Speaking prophetically. And God is looking at the whole scene of their exile. And with a few notable exceptions, he sees a people who chose to blame God for their problems. When they didn't have to go to exile in the first place. They were sold for nothing, as he says again. You chose to rebel. You chose to sin. You chose to put yourselves in shackles. And what do you do? You double down. You blaspheme. Who is this people that God's going to save? That's verse 53, uh, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? All that verse means is who exactly is it that God is talking about saving here? It's not a worthy people. It's not a people who deserve salvation. It's a people who constantly gripe and complain to the God who's showing them a better way. Verse 6. Therefore, my people will know my name. They will know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. You have to remember, Judah has been living in idolatry. They've been worshiping and following every other name but Jehovah. But once captivity is done, once exile is over and they come home, they will know no other God but Jehovah. 
Now, you can quibble with that. They worshiped themselves. The Pharisees certainly did. And they followed their traditions. But they, they left idolatry. They ran so far the other direction, they became Pharisees. But the point here is, you will know God is your deliverer. You will know the name of the one who saved you. And it's not Ra, and it's not, you know, Tola. It's not some other false god or some other person you can name. It is me, Jehovah, who will save you. Now that takes us to the second section, 7 through 12. How wonderful this salvation is going to be. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them that bring good tidings and publish peace. And bring good tidings of good and publish salvation. That says to Zion, your God reigns. Is this phraseology familiar? How beautiful on the, are the feet of them that bring the gospel of peace. Paul quotes from this text in Romans. How beautiful are those who are going to publish this message of salvation. Who are going to stand on the mountaintops and shout for joy that you get to be saved. Now we've totally turned the page now. We're leaving exile. And as they come out of exile, they hear this song on the mountains. As they approach the holy hill Zion. And they hear standing on the mountaintops this voice saying, It's wonderful. You're home. Salvation has come. God reigns. Something had to be done to pay for that. We'll get there in a second. Verse 8, the watchmen lift up their voice. With the voice together they sing, and they see eye to eye, the watchman and the person on the mountaintop, when the Lord shall bring again Zion. So you have this person on the mountain. He's up high. He's shouting and he's singing. He's telling it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. That's, that's the conclusion. That's the big picture. But as far as Judah is concerned, you have this voice on the mountain shouting about how great salvation is. And then down in the valley, at the bottom of the mountain, standing at the gates where you would cross through to enter into the city or the town or the village, whatever it is. At the bottom, the person who's in charge of deciding who gets in and who gets out, he's also shouting the good news. He's welcoming in the people to this place of salvation, this place of victory, this place of conquest. As he's about to describe in just a second. Look at verse 9. Break forth into joy. Sing together. They see eye to eye. They're singing the same song. Sing together. You waste places of Jerusalem. Again, you have to remember the context. Judah is right, Isaiah is writing to a Judah whose Jerusalem is thriving right now. But they're about to be overrun. They're about to be ransacked. The Babylonians are going to burn the city down. The temple is going to be laid waste. The holy emblems are going to be carried out if not destroyed. So they're going to see eventually, from his perspective, they're going to see a desolate place that once was their beautiful Jerusalem. And now they get to go back. And what is he saying? Break forth into joy, saying, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Well, he hasn't done it yet. But Isaiah is so far in the future, speaking prophetically, he's looking back on it as though it's already happened. If you read the prophets enough, you read a lot of past tense words about things that are going to happen. So he's saying it's guaranteed. You can take it to the bank. God is going to deliver you. That's why I'm writing about it as if it's already happened. He will redeem Jerusalem. He has redeemed you. He has saved you. What was the price? We'll get there. Verse 10. This is my favorite verse. This, this is the verse 10 is the reason why I wanted to study this chapter. Because it is a beautiful metaphor for the action of God. For God stepping up and taking an active role in something. He's not working providentially. He's not uh, letting nature take its course and then you know guiding people individually. This is God taking a direct hand in doing something. And how does Isaiah describe God taking a direct hand in their salvation? Verse 10. The Lord has made bare His holy arm. I, I grew up on a farm. I've said that before. I actually used to do manual labor, if you can believe it. 
and we have still do a, a big stove that was set outside in our backyard and that stove heated our heat it heated our water it heated us it, it was everything that was everything we had if we wanted hot water if we wanted hot air in the winter time we had to keep that stove full of logs so my father would chop down the logs chop up the logs and i would haul back the logs and we'd haul them these huge things you know not i would have to walk you know i could make the story sound worse we put them on a wagon and bring them back that sounds like from the 1800s a wagon on a four-wheeler and bring them back but these huge logs I had to haul. Well, listen, it could be eight degrees outside in the middle of January while I'm doing that work on a Saturday. And I would be drenched in sweat. And what would you do when you work hard? What do you do? You roll up your sleeves. You make bare your arm. This is Isaiah saying, you're going to be saved. God is going to take care of you. He is going to roll up his sleeves and make bare his holy arm. And that's why in chapter 53, he says in verse 1, To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who is this ungrateful, unworthy, ridiculous, sinful people that God is going to do all this work for? It's evil Judah and it's evil me. Keep going. He will make bare his holy arm, verse 10, in the eyes of all the nations, Jew, Gentile, though the Jews didn't realize that at the time. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So depart, depart, go out from thence. Let's leave Babylon. Let's get out of this wicked captivity. Go out from this. Touch none of the unclean things. Go out from the midst of this, the her, her being Babylon. Uh, don't go by flight for the Lord will go. Oh, sorry. Verse 12. No, no. Verse 11. Don't touch the unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean and bear the vessels of the Lord. Forgot that part. That's the end of verse 11. Bear the vessels of the Lord. You've got to remember, Judah is going to stand in Jerusalem, a recently conquest and captive people, and they're going to see their holy temple burning. And they're going to see soldiers marching out of that burning temple carrying their sacred emblems. And Isaiah is now saying, let's get up and let's go home. And what's waiting for us when we go home is a renewed temple, a new holy city, new sacred emblems. Now, Judah's going to read this and they're going to think a rebuilt temple. They're going to think a refurbished altar. And they are going to get those things. But Isaiah is talking spiritual. You're going to have a new, better, greater spiritual temple. A new, better, greater spiritual sacrament. A new, better, greater spiritual holy place. And most holy place. An altar. So get ready for that. Verse 12. For you shall not go out with haste, nor by flight. You're not sneaking out of Babylon. You're not slipping away in the middle of the night. This isn't the great escape where you dig a tunnel and you hop out at night and you run off. Hop on a motorcycle and just pray. No, you're going to march out. You're going to walk out conquerors. You're going to leave Babylon with your heads high. Victors over them. How is that possible? Verse 12. Don't go by haste. Don't go by flight. For the Lord will march in front of you. He will go before you. He will be the, the first one in the line marching you out. And the God of Israel will be your, the King James says, re-reward. Which sounds like... King James was stuttering, but the word means he will be your protector. So you're going to you're expecting us in this captive position that we're in in Babylon to get up in the middle of the day where all can see and just march out of the city. This place that is legally and militarily completely conquered us. We're just going to march out like we own the place. And Isaiah says, yep. Well, don't you think they might want to keep us? That's kind of why you take slaves. They might want to keep us. Well, no, because God's going to be going in front of you. He's going to be your protector, making sure they let you go. 
Now, history will credit Cyrus with the freedom of, of God's people from Babylonian exile. But God is the one taking the credit. I'm going to march before you. Well, who is this person? Who is this God that is marching in front of the line? What does he look like? Who is this great champion? Who is this great ruler, this great conqueror, this great king? How do you describe him, Isaiah? That's the last three verses. Look at 13. Behold my servant. That's the one in the front of the line. That's the God who is delivering you. Behold, my servant will deal with you people prudently. My servant will do everything that he does with great wisdom and caution and care. He will deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The same kind of language Isaiah uses in chapter 6 when he is called up to the third heaven and he sits and stands in front of the throne of God. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Now in chapter 53, he'll say, we knocked him down. We despised him. We made him very low. But here he pictures this being who is exalted, who is very high, who is worthy of the great platform on which he stands. Wow, I want to see that person. What does he look like? He's in front of me and I see he's high and lifted up. He's majestic in his appearance. And then he says in verse 14, and many were shocked to see what he actually looked like. You expect, you know, golden locks. You expect a shimmering crown on his head. You expect this face full of pride, a raised nose in the air, the great conqueror champion who led the victory over Babylon, but that's not what you get. When it's a great conquest, when it's a great victory, like our spiritual Babylon is, our victory over sin, you expect your champion to look the part. He doesn't look the part. If you see him, you'll be shocked at him. His, my Bible says, visage, the King James, it's, his appearance is so marred, so disfigured, so made ugly, so ruined, more than anyone in all of humanity has ever looked. And now you start to get this idea in your head. This one who made our salvation possible paid a high price in himself. Fifteen. He will, the King James says, and I bet your Bible does too, sprinkle. Anybody have a Bible that doesn't say sprinkle? There's a New Living Translation that does it, but most Bibles will say in verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. Not our, that's not the right translation. The word in the Hebrew means he will startle. He will shock many nations. He will shock them when they look at him. In other words, that's the context. To behold this champion, to behold this conqueror, this bringer of salvation will shock you, which is why right after that it says, even kings will shut their mouths at me. The gospel will go to peasant and ruler. It will go to the affluent and the impoverished. And everyone who hears it doesn't matter if you've seen it all, so you say, or you, you nothing can faze you. If you hear the story of Jesus, you'll be shocked. And you'll cover your mouth. I'm almost done. Kings will shut their mouths at him. For that which they had never been told, will they see. You've never seen anything like this. That which they've never heard, will they hear. You've never heard a story as amazing as this, as tragic as this, as horrifying as this. He's going to purchase your salvation. He's going to buy your freedom. And he's going to take every lick of punishment to do it. That's this champion. That's this Savior. And as Isaiah predicts and describes him, he describes him in, he doesn't give you the details of the horror of what he looks like. He just tells you what your reaction is. You're going to be shocked to see him. 
And so with that said, we'll go to chapter 53 in a couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to go to Gethsemane. And we're going to go to the mind of Jesus inside his head as he prepares to go to the cross. And he offers his final prayer to God. But here, as we end 52, prepare for yourself for what 53 is really all about. It's about describing what he's going to go through while saying, and look how unworthy we are for it. Who are we to have God raise up his sleeves and get to work saving us? We are unworthy. We despised him. We hated him. And yet he bore all our griefs and he carried all our sorrows. Now I'm not teaching 53. I got to stop. That's time. Time's up. But that's chapter 52. God rolled up his sleeves to save you at his expense. Thanks, y'all, very much.